Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Love doing that. (laughs) Well, good afternoon and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club. You can find the Commonwealth Club on the internet at commonwealthclub.org and see our videos on YouTube, catch up with the club on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, We're not yet on Snapchat, but what, you know, maybe one day. I'm Dr. David Batstone. I'm professor of entrepreneurship and innovation at the University of San Francisco School of Management, and I'll be your moderator for today's program. I'm really thrilled to be here today to hear Dr. Mary Daly speak, the president and chief executive officer of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. Today, President Daly will address the topic, managing inflation in the current economy, the bumpy road to 2%. This is her first policy talk that she'll give this year, so we're quite privileged. Ten years into a historic economic expansion, inflation remains surprisingly subdued. Is this a problem or is it a benefit? San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank President Mary Daly will talk about navigating this debate and finding clarity as a policymaker. Dr. Daly became president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, On October 1st, 2018, in this role, she participates on the Federal Open Market Committee, bringing the 12th District's perspective to monetary policy in Washington, D.C. Daly is a widely respected expert on labor markets with an unusual breadth of personal experience. She dropped out of high school at the age of 15, working in a donut shop and at Target before a friend persuaded her to earn a general education diploma. My son had the same idea, and I dissuaded him from that. (laughs) She worked her way through college at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, then earned a doctorate from Syracuse University before joining the Fed in 1996. Prior to her appointment to the president, Daly served as the bank's executive vice president and director of research. Daly has become a strong voice for increasing diversity among the leadership ranks of the Federal Reserve System by building a pipeline for women and minorities minorities entering the economics profession. Today, we'll hear a unique perspective from an official responsible for supporting a safe, sound, and stable American financial system. Please join me in welcoming San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank President Mary Daly. So thank you, everyone. Uh, Good afternoon. Thank you for that lovely introduction. And thank you all for coming. I have to admit right out of the gate that speaking at the Commonwealth Club has always been on my professional bucket list. And you might ask why. There's a whole history of fancy people, as we like to say in the Midwest, which means accomplished and influential, etc. But the main reason, the reason it's such an honor to be here is that this is a place which I think of as a safe place where people can grapple with the important issues we face in our economy and in our society and do so openly and in a public forum. So it is a great honor to be here and continue in this tradition. So as we just heard, I started my job just about six months ago. In fact, my anniversary will be April 1st, uh, which is just next week. That's kind of an odd thing, right? But that will be my six-month anniversary. And when I took the job, One thing that I really took in was that this job is an incredible responsibility, one I take very seriously. 
Eight times a year, I travel back to Washington, D.C. to participate in the Federal Open Market Committee meeting, the FOMC, and we make decisions about monetary policy that affect the lives of every American, every single American, and countless global citizens. So this is a role which requires study, it requires debate, and it requires a seriousness, and that is what's so responsible about it. That's what's so important about it. And what I want to do today in my remarks is tell you, since I'm responsible to all of you, tell you what I see on the economic landscape and how I think of policy affecting that economic landscape. Now, before I start, I have to remind us all that the remarks I'm going to make today are my own and do not necessarily represent anyone else on the Federal Open Market Committee, Committee or in the Federal Reserve System more generally. So let me begin by, by talking about what the Federal Reserve's goal is. What, is. what is our mission? Our mission in monetary policy is to create a healthy and stable economy. And we do this by achieving two goals that Congress gave us. So Congress said, we want you to achieve a healthy and stable economy by doing two things, full employment and price stability. These are called our dual mandate. So full employment, in a very simple way, means that everyone who wants a job can get one. And price stability means that the dollar in your pocket holds its value from year to year. Now, to execute on this price stability goal, the Federal Reserve has chosen 2% inflation as one that's not too low and not too high. So 2% inflation and full employment, those are our dual mandate goals. And it's reasonable to ask if you're if you're in the public, how do we judge our success in the Federal Reserve and how should you think about whether we're successful or not? So let's start with just the overall health of the economy. In terms of the overall health of the economy, we are just a few months away. In the summer, we will achieve a historic record. We will have the longest period of time in the U.S. history without a recession. So this is a remarkable achievement one that is really important for all the individuals who partake in the economy. Last year, 2018, we grew as an economy at 3%. Now, that may seem like a number either that's too little or too big. Who knows? We have to have a context. So the context is our sustainable pace of growth is about 2%. So about 2% growth per year is what we think of as the sustainable pace of growth, and we grew at 3% per year. So we're really robust growth in 2018. While I see some slowing on the horizon this year in 2019, the slowing I see just brings us back down to a sustainable pace of growth and not into something that's more negative or a recession. So that's how we're doing on the overall economy. It's not surprising when you have such good growth in the overall economy that what also is true is we have a robust labor market. In fact, if you think about the labor market, it's been nothing short of extraordinary. So let me give you a few facts that support that uh, proposition. So the first fact is last year we added 2.7 million jobs. That's a big number, but it's also about twice as many as we need it to just absorb new entrants or people re-entering after an absence into the labor market. As a consequence, what's happened is the unemployment rates continue to drop. And in fact, we're at a low that we haven't seen since the 1960s. So another part of history, another mark on our, on our history books. Now, as economists, we think the world works the following way. We have a really good economy, rapid growth, good expansion. We have a robust job market, 
here's what should happen. Inflation should be going up. Because as the economy gets hot, inflation rises, and that's how we think the economy works. But that's actually not what's, not what's been happening now. What's been happening is that inflation has remained relatively muted. And in fact, if you look over the last decade, it's only grazed 2%. And over the last seven years, we haven't achieved 2%, our target, on a sustained basis. So that is a period of time when inflation is too low relative to our, our goals. So if I'm just doing a report card for our dual mandate and whether we've achieved it, I feel pretty good, really good about employment, but less good about inflation. Let me just take a drink of water. So the question is, what's up with inflation? You might ask, you know, I ask that all the time, what's up with inflation? But... <laughs> I mean, I am a policymaker. So, but, but seriously, you know, have the laws of supply and demand simply failed us? Are our models broken? Should we throw them out? Or is something else uh, getting in our way? And what I want to spend my rest of my time talking about is what's going on with inflation and what should we make of it? And importantly, what should we do in monetary policy to think about these issues? So let's start though, by going back to Econ 101. And I'm hoping no one's going to groan. Don't groan. It's going to be so easy. Um, so in order to think about what's happening with inflation, you actually have to go back and think about how does economic activity affect inflation? And importantly, where does the Federal Reserve fit into any of this? So let's start by just thinking about a simple model about how the Federal Reserve affects economic activity and how economic activity affects inflation. So the Federal Reserve sets the short-term interest rate. Short-term interest rates affect consumer borrowing and business spending. So the spending affects the level of economic activity. Basically, how much consumers and businesses are engaging in spending affects the overall level of economic activity. Now, when we have a high level of economic activity like we have today, the labor market gets hot, and that allows workers to go and ask their employers for wage increases. And when, they, when employers give wage increases, they say, well, we've, our costs have just risen. We want our profits to stay roughly the same, and we pass that right along to final goods prices. So that's how the world works in these simple models. You get interest rates affecting spending, which affect, affecting borrowing costs, affecting spending. Spending affects the labor market. Labor market affects wages. Wages affect prices. Perfect. And in my old role as research director, I could stand over there and say, that's how the world works. And I could think about whether there were some things disrupting it, but mostly that's how the world works. But that's not a luxury I have anymore. I stepped into the policymaking role, and I have to live in the real world. And in the real world, there are many, many things that disrupt that very simple model I just described to you. I call those things wedges. One, because I'm an economist, I have to give it a name. But two, because I think of wedges as something that's you know, just getting in between the simple linkages I just described, between borrowing costs and spending, or between spending and economic activity, or between economic activity and the labor market. So I'm always looking for these wedges. And I'm sure, because that was so incredibly clear, right, that you're just, your mind is spinning about all the possible wedges that could get in the way. But the ones I want to bring your attention to today are the ones that relate to employment and then to wages and to prices. So let's start by thinking about the uh, employment to wages part. 
Now, I have the benefit, one of the great benefits of being a Federal Reserve Bank president is that you get to talk to all kinds of people. You'd be surprised how many people want to talk to me. But I talk to businesses, I talk to community leaders, community members, workers, and something that I've been hearing again and again and again is that the labor market has fundamentally changed that there are just big changes in the labor market that we need to understand if we're going to make effective policy. So one of those changes is employees, workers, are asking their firms for different kinds of compensation than they've historically asked for. And they're asking for it regularly, not just episodically. So examples of that would be unlimited time off. Not always paid, but just unlimited time off. Flexible work schedules, wanting to work remotely, wanting free transportation to and from work, wanting student loan repayment, or wanting even housing subsidies. So all of those things are forms of compensation that you would think would go up in a hot labor market. The problem for policymakers is those are not traditionally measured in our traditional measures of wage and salary growth. So we have wage and salary growth, which includes your pay, but some of those benefits I just mentioned, they don't get easily captured in the measures we, we look at. So this is a measurement issue that creates a wedge. It's a wedge between a hot labor market and what we see going on with wage growth. So that's one kind of wedge. Another kind of wedge that's much more structural in the, in the labor market, not about measurement, is a wedge that many of you, I'm sure, are aware of, the documentation that worker bargaining power has been declining over the last couple of decades. Workers just have fewer uh, abilities to bargain with their employer and get higher wages. Now, this relates to a variety of factors, including declining unionization, just the sheer number of people participating in unions has come down but also automation and globalization. We're just in a much more competitive economy than we used to be 20 years ago. We're global competitors now, not just domestic competitors. So those things mean that when the labor market gets really hot, workers just have less ability to bargain for wages because firms can go elsewhere and use other alternatives. So that's another wedge that disrupts employment to wage growth. Interestingly, workers are not the only people facing this competitive pressure or this changing global landscape. Firms also face this. So firms are increasingly facing competition, competition from automation. Big firms can automate and make small firms not able to pass along price increases. Globalization means that you can get your goods from everywhere. In fact, I bet that if you thought, you've probably ordered a good on Amazon that came from another country. It didn't even start its, its, its journey in the United States. All of this means we live in a globally competitive marketplace. And what that means is that firms are less able to pass along price increases or wage increases or input cost increases along to final goods prices. So that's a wedge that disrupts the link between wage growth or other input growth and final goods prices. And all of these wedges I've described that disrupt employment to wages and wages to inflation, price inflation, all of those wedges end up with the result we see today, the result of a really strong economy, a strong labor market, but muted inflation. Now, there's one more wedge that I want to talk about. And this wedge may surprise you, because this wedge is the Fed itself. We are creating a wedge between economic activity and inflation. Now, to understand why, you have to recall just a series of a set of facts. 
One fact is that's really important is that for the last 20 years, inflation has remained roughly around 2%, our goal. It's roughly around 2%. So that's a good thing. But what it does is it means that we are tethered around that 2% in a way that's important. To understand, tethered around that in a way that's important, but I forgot to tell you the important thing. Inflation barely moves whether you have a good time or a bad time. So if I run a really hot economy, not me personally, but if we run a really hot economy, then inflation barely budges. The economy goes south as it did in the Great Recession, inflation barely budges. So inflation just doesn't fluctuate as much as the economy fluctuates. Now to understand how we got to this place and what this really means and how important it is, we have to go all the way back to one of those bad times. We don't have to go that far back. We can go to the 1970s. So as many of you remember, I'm sure, in the 1970s, the U.S. economy was hit by a series of economic shocks, many of them right in a row. And one of those shocks was an oil embargo. And that oil embargo pushed the price of oil, skyrocketed, really. The price of gas went up. And I remember personally standing in long gas lines to get gas. So it's not only the price went up, but the quantities went down. So, but when this price of oil and price of gas went up, because workers' contracts often had cost-of-living adjustments, COLAs, written right into them, wages went up in lockstep. So the price of oil goes up, that gets translated into a wage increase, and that wage increase gets immediately transferred into a final goods price increase, and you get the beginnings of a vicious cycle of what economists call cost-push inflation. Wages and other input costs rise, prices go up, prices go up, that feeds back and wages rise again, and on and on it goes. And when the Federal Reserve didn't respond to that dynamic that was forming, what happened is inflation rose rapidly, and people started to expect high inflation was just a fact of life. So here's what happens. If you expect inflation to be a fact of life, you write it into all your permanent contracts. If you think prices are going up double-digit rates next year, you don't ever take anything without writing that into the contract. That affects everything you do. And it wasn't until the Federal Reserve raised interest rates quite dramatically that inflation started to get back under control, started to come down from those double-digit levels. But as many of us, again, will remember, that was a really long and painful process with negative consequences on the economy as we did it. So once the Fed got there to a lower level of inflation, it committed, doubled down on the commitment to keep inflation low. And this ushered in a period of time when people said, oh, inflation's not going to be rising at those rapid rates. It's coming down. So I can expect that inflation next year will be roughly the same as it was this year, and it'll be low. And on and on it went. So people started to expect not high inflation, but lower inflation. And an era which we call the well-anchored inflation expectations era emerged. And you can see this in the data. It's really remarkable. I know I'm kind of geeky, but it's really cool to see. So inflation expectations, and these are the expectations of people like yourselves, businesses and consumers, and they just ask questions, what do you expect inflation to be next year or five years from now? And in the 1970s and early 1980s, they were high, double-digit levels. People thought inflation was going to rise you know, 10 12% each year. So then it starts coming down as the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates and inflation is coming down. You see 
it's trailing. You know, consumers or businesses are not right jump on the on board right away. They wait to start to see in the data, and then inflation expectations start to come down. And since the mid 1990s, inflation expectations of consumers and businesses have been right around this two percent target that we have. So this era of well-anchored inflation expectations has been with us for a while, and it has very important economic benefits. And I want to highlight those. The very important economic benefits it has is that if you think your expectation is that inflation is roughly going to be around 2% because the Fed's credible, then if you see businesses and consumers, you see a spike in oil prices or a spike in gas prices or some other price go up, you actually know that that's temporary and you don't write it into permanent contracts. You don't amplify the effects of that one increase and make it more persistent in the economy. And I mean you, like all economic agents, all of us. We get more comfortable that the Fed is going to bring that inflation back down, and we smooth through uh, temporary variability in prices. So this has really nice, important economic benefits, especially when our goal is a healthy and stable economy. right? So this 2% inflation target has worked over the last 20 years, and it is an important component of how effective our monetary policy is. But ironically, or if you could say here's the twist about it, the twist is that it is the essence of the Fed wedge. The Fed itself is a wedge that's disrupting the link between economic activity and inflation. Because people are saying, well, I know the Federal Reserve is going to keep inflation close to two, so no matter how hot the economy gets, I'm not expecting inflation to get very far from two. So that's the Fed wedge. So you might then, I mean, I do, I ask myself, okay, now what am I going to do with that? So I've got a Fed wedge, I've got these other wedges, they're disrupting this link between economic activity and inflation that's so important if we're going to achieve our dual mandate goals. What is monetary policy to do? So let's just go back to something I started with. Inflation has run below our 2% target for the past seven years. It's grazed 2%, but it, can't stay, it hasn't stayed there on a sustained basis. So what are we to do? Now, you might say, and people do say to me, well, Mary, isn't inflation low pretty good? I mean, isn't it nice when prices stay roughly the same from year to year? That seems good to me. But there's another side of this. Too low inflation is also a problem. One problem with too low inflation is it puts you at greater risk, the economy at greater risk, of falling into deflation or negative inflation. And all we have to do is look at Japan to see how difficult that is to get out of once you fall into that. So that's a risk we want to avoid. We want to minimize. Another problem with too low inflation is it gives the Fed very little room, if we have another economic downturn, to lower interest rates. So it takes some of our policy space away on the interest rate. But I want to argue that the most important problem with inflation too low, lower than 2%, has to do with the fact that we said it was going to be 2%. We state we have a target of 2%. We state that target is symmetric. We state and we believe that inflation below 2 is just as difficult for us and just as problematic as inflation above 2, and those are our commitments. So achieving our commitments is important. We have to deliver 2 on a sustained basis. And if we don't, it starts to tug, tug down on this inflation expectations. 
And I just went through the history of inflation expectations and what happens when they become unmoored from our target. It has negative consequences. And falling below our target, ex expectations falling below our target, is just as costly as expectations rising above our target. So right now, I don't see any evidence that inflation expectations have yet pulled that anchor lower, that they're, they're tethered now at a lower level than 2%. But the data are coming in on inflation expectations over the last five years suggest that consumers and businesses are a little bit less optimistic, a little bit lower on their judgment that 2% is achievable. So we're not, I don't think the anchor has slipped, but we need to keep our eye on this. It bears very close watching. And most importantly, to my mind, it, can, it means we have to be vigilant. Vigilant to deliver the 2% we told people we would deliver. Vigilant to ensure that our credibility remains sound. And vigilant to basically do what we said we were going to do. Because we have a dual mandate, and achieving both sides of that mandate are important. So let me end with just a few closing remarks. The idea that credibility is important, I've re referenced it mostly as it relates to inflation, but I want to make a broader point. The credibility of the Fed and the trust the American people put in the Fed is actually a foundational element of the effectiveness of our monetary policy. It is much more difficult to do good monetary policy if the public, the economic agents, that's consumers and businesses, don't trust that this is going to be, that the Fed is acting in that regard. The Fed has to do this in order for the monetary policy to be the most effective. But trust between people in an institution is very much like trust between individuals. So you only have to reflect on your own lives to understand what, I, what we need to do. You earn trust, and you can smooth through some shocks when that trust, and, and still have that trust. But when you have trust, you have to build it and earn it all the time. You have to continue to support it. And so when I took this job as Federal Reserve Bank President of San Francisco Fed, that's my commitment. That's my commitment to you and, and all other Americans, is that we earn this trust, and we support this trust, and I, in my job, plan to re-earn it and re-support it every day. Thank you. Okay, that's fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, and, you know, you'll notice that Mary did not refer to her notes, but... Um, you know, spoke extemporaneously, easy for me to say. Um, <laughs> listen, uh, I'd like a little bit of personal background first, because okay. I mean, I, I can't avoid this. How did you go from 15 years old, you know, working in a donut shop? By the way, my favorite donut is the one with the peanuts on it. You can't get it anymore. Okay. But uh, how did you go from there to, you know, doing a doctorate at Syracuse? I mean, that's, that's, that's a tough ride. On a crooked path. <laughs> so, uh, thank you for the question. I... You know, I dropped out, just so it's clear. I dropped out because my family, you know, the way I like to describe it is this, that many American families, and mine was one of them, you look at them and they look okay from the outside, but they're just one economic or health shock away from falling through. 
from just falling through and not being able to move forward. And that happened to my family when I was about 15. And when those things happen, school and other things just aren't important. I left school to help support the family, to help uh, make, help gain money and income. And also just because my head was clouded with the problems of the day and not so much related to uh, thinking about school. But I was really fortunate, as uh, you referenced, to, to meet a mentor, Betsy, who I still keep in touch with. And she said, you should get a GED. And I did, because I thought I could get a bus driving job with a GED and work and have a union and get health insurance. So I, these were all things that you know, we still think about. But after I got the GED, she said, you should go to a semester of college. And she always did like this. It was like a little nudge. Uh, because if she had said, go to college, I would have freaked out. So then I went to college for one semester, and I did well enough that she said, you should get an a, a undergrad degree. So I did. And she said, you should move further from home. So I did. And I went to University of Missouri, Kansas City, and I got my degree in, uh, I started in psychology and ended up with a dual major in philosophy and economics and a minor in psychology. And everybody in psychology is probably glad for that. <laughs> Better <laughs> off in economics. But, the, um, but then I went on to get a PhD, and at that point I studied labor economics and public policy, uh, fiscal policy mostly. And then I end up at a job that does monetary policy and macroeconomics. So I'm a microeconomist, labor economist, and a macro monetary policy shop. And it's been, it's been an amazing journey, but one that I, I will say, I used to worry that I was just getting up these things despite what I had gone through, and now I realize that I've gotten here because of what I went through. And that's why I take this role so seriously, because it's a voice at the table that's different than many other voices mm -hmm. at the table. Mm -hmm. You uh, started last October, and then, um, you know, many people don't understand how the Federal Reserve operates in terms of making decisions. Mm -hmm. Seven governors in Washington, D.C., 12 uh, presidents of banks, and those presidents uh, rotate in terms of their participation, the decision-making on, say, the, uh, the interest rate, right? So... Uh, Roughly right, but can I make one correction? Uh, please, because it's a, I'm it's trying a, to review how really, I understand it. No, it's a super common misconception that we do rotate on who votes. The regional bank presidents rotate on who votes, but there's no relationship between voting and participation. Oh. And so that's what's beautiful about the Fed is the 12 Federal Reserve Bank presidents are all actively engaging in the debate. They're thinking hard about the issues. They're influencing and they're... they're uh, part of the decision-making, even though we don't go around and vote every time. Oh, that's fantastic. So do you all show up, uh, you know, in Washington, D.C., or go to a retreat place? Or? No, we show up in Washington, D.C. It doesn't look like oh, a no, retreat. no, no Bahamas. It's a fancy oh. boardroom, <laughs> okay, but right. from way back, you know, all there's right. an original map from probably when the Fed building was built. But it's a, it's a really impressive room. It's a very scary room sometimes. Uh, when you first go on, you know, I moved from the back of the, of the table. So there's a big, giant table, and you sit behind it when you're on the staff. And so I visited the FOMC many times as a staff person. But the first time I had to go and sit at the big table where predecessors I admire greatly have sat, I, you know... You, you Were the only woman at the first meeting? That no, I wasn't, actually. We have other women, um, Governor Brainerd, uh, and then two presidents. And we have a new governor, Governor Bowman. And right. then we have uh, President Mester and President George, Kansas City and Cleveland. So there are five women on the Federal Reserve uh, at Open Market yeah. Committee right now. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. 
And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Okay, your first meeting, what was the experience like for you? Oh my gosh, it was fantastic. Really? So it was absolutely fantastic. So, you know, I said you're a little nervous, and I'm fortunate I have great colleagues at the San Francisco Fed. One of them sitting here right in front of me today, our uh, first vice president, Mark Gould. He was acting as the interim president while we searched. And so before I went into the meeting, because you're not allowed to take electronic devices, I'm texting him going, here I go. And he says, you'll be great. <laughs> and so, so I walk in and, and I saved that text, by the way. It's, yeah. So, good man. Good man, exactly. So I went into um, the room and what was really nice about the meeting is it looked like every other meeting I'd ever seen. It is a open discussion. People come in with their ideas. They come in with views. But then there's an open discussion. There's an open debate. People don't always agree, but they're very curious about what the other person thinks. Mm. And so it's not like I'm going to throw my opinion out there and then I'm going to sit like this. It's more, okay, here's how I'm thinking about the economy. How do you think about the economy? And it's just a welcoming place to be when that's how it works. And I feel really... I felt really good about my one, the first meeting, but also it's a reminder that this Fed independence actually is something that benefits us in terms of dialogue. Mm. Is there a fair degree of um, a common ground on the indicators that would determine action or is it a very broad spectrum of opinion? No, so the way, and you can see this if you look at public remarks from all the participants of the FOMC, all of us are looking at the same, uh, like similar dashboards. Mm -hmm. The amount of data we have to view nowadays is so much more than we had Mm -hmm. to view just, you know, 20 years ago. We have a lot of access to information. And what people are doing is they're looking at that information through their lenses. And their lenses can be, they're talking with businesses and, and community leaders and and workers, it can be, and, and all of us do all of this. You're looking at economic theory, you're looking at the data, and what you're really doing is you're coming and saying, I've looked at all the information you're looking at, and here's how I see it. And the other person will say, well, I see it a little bit differently. And so you don't disagree on the facts about the economy, you're actually just trying to interpret what those facts are telling us about the outlook and about the appropriate response of policy. Uh, I can't tell you how fascinating this is. It's almost like a secret society that I always wonder how it worked and how people People gather. So super cool. Is it now? What about like uh, it's not like a Supreme Court uh, nomination where you live there for life, right? I mean, That's right. What are the rules around how long your term might be? So not that I'm trying to get rid of you. You just started. So I'm going to just admit to you that I'm only six months into the job and I'm going to celebrate that six months and I haven't given any thought to when I'll be out of it. But there, <laughs> what are you going to do when you leave? No, no, go ahead. <laughs> but the, um, and, I, and I actually don't remember all that, recall all the different rules about the terms that people have. The important thing that I have in my mind is that my job is there while as long as, and all of us have this in our minds, we're there as long as we're serving the American people well. And otherwise, it's the vote of public opinion that will basically make us, uh, give us pause. Not when we're going to end or the reappointment process or anything. It's really how well are we doing. That's something I want to just emphasize. The thing that binds all the participants together, in my view, is that we all are there for exactly the same thing, Mm. the American people. And when you walk across that threshold into the room where we're going to deliberate about monetary policy, you're not thinking about anything else. You're just thinking about how do we serve the American people the best. And that is actually really cool, right? Yeah. It's a really cool place to, to be. 
The last time I was here on this stage was with Stephen Moore. Seriously. And we had a big conversation with Bradley DeLong from Berkeley. Um, they didn't agree on a lot, but it was a fascinating civic conversation. Uh, I'm not going to ask you what you think of, of candidate Moore, but more of the politicization of the process, that you choose people, not necessarily based on their economic, the breadth of their background, or, but more along uh, ideological lines. So is that a danger for the Federal Reserve? Well, I'm, I think that what we want to do is watch the process as it plays out. We've committed to a process. That process is the regional feds, the boards of directors choose the heads of those regional feds. We've committed to a process where the president nominates mm -hmm. the people who serve at the, as governors of the Federal Reserve, including the vice chair and the chairman, of, or chair of the Fed. That process has served us well because what happens is no matter who gets chosen, no matter who's at that table, they do the same thing I just described. Yeah. They cross the threshold and they talk about the dashboard of economic indicators. They use the best science and art that they can to think about this. And ultimately, and I'm not just, just exaggerating here, ultimately, everyone around the table when they're talking is thinking about the American people. Yeah. And, you know, that means that no matter what happens in terms of how it gets there, mm -hmm. the process has worked. And we've managed to be an independent, democratic thinking, diverse views, and building a consensus around what's best mm -hmm. in terms of appropriate policy. Mm -hmm. So I think of it as a, an effective system that's working. Okay. There is a, a question from the audience related to the latest decision, uh, I guess the last meeting of not raising uh, interest rates, and a perception uh, in the general public is, was that a folding of kind of political pressure from the executive oh. branch? Over and against before, there was, you know, uh, people from the more conservative end of the political spectrum thought, thought that it was a betrayal of the economy to raise the rates in quarter four. So I'm just wondering, you know, that's just part of the job. And Jeremy Howe's been very measured in his response to that. And I think, you know, quite admirably. But just wonder, how do you deal with those external pressures? So with with uh, facts. Say from, yes. <laughs> with facts. So just let me have, like... 30 seconds to be a geeky economist and tell you so how we think about it. And then policymaking. So here's, here's how I think about what happened. Here's, I, this is what I did. So I can speak for what I did. I'm looking at the information coming in about the economy in December when we made, and I was a voting member of the FOMC there, but again, we're fully participatory whether we're voting or not. But when we go in in December, I've got an economy that is going to outpace potential output growth by a percentage point. So economy's growing at three, and we think two is the sustainable pace. The job market's going gangbusters. It looks like we've just got so much momentum. And we know from history that if we let the economy run away on itself, it falls into, it trips and falls into recession. Mm. So we can't do that. That's also not prudent. So at that point, we were, the interest rate was well above what we think is the neutral rate of interest, which is another geeky part of it. But you want to you want to basically have the economy be in a place where we weren't stimulating it through monetary policy mm -hmm. anymore. So that rate increase in December was getting the economy up to neutral. Now we're there. We're not neither stimulating the economy or restraining it. And then we look for the data. And you become ever more data dependent. And the data have been coming in a little bit slower than we thought, mm. than I projected. And with that slower growth and the self-restraining aspects of the economy already bringing down 2%, then patience is the way to go because you don't want to guess 
that we need to do more or guess that we need to do less. Mm. You just want to be patient and look at the data and see how it emerges. So that's what I, that's the thought process that underlied my decisions. And it is observationally equivalent, as I'd like to say, to a variety of other interpretations, but those interpretations don't bear witness to the information that I use to make the decision. Fair enough. Well, we have a very interested audience. I have a big stack of questions that they've contributed. So, let me okay, I'm ready. Them. You ready? It's now the lightning round. No, um. you know these lightning rounds. People are doing this to me a lot. The lightning round. <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, you're you're delightful too. Uh, wow, big hand for it, right? I mean, just a. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we're so proud you represent San Francisco and oh, District Twelve. So, listen, um, IPO activity. Um, it, you know, how do you think that will influence job and wage growth? And we're going to see, you know, Lyft, Uber, Airbnb, a lot of IPO is going to happen. And do you see any similarities between today and the dot-com bubble that burst, what, late 90s? Well, there are similarities, but not necessarily predictive. So you can see similarities in the data, and it's a caution I always have to use myself, is you can see similarities in the data. What are they? Well, We've got a really hot venture capital market, an IPO. We've got a lot of activity. There's a lot of, if you're in conversation with people as I am, there are some who think that the fundamentals support the activity. There are some who think that, no, we're in a little bit of an exalted state where you can't see the fundamentals. We've Housing prices are rising and there's constraints. Wages are rising and there's constraints. There just aren't enough workers to supply all these firms. So all of those things look very similar to the dot-com. But what... What we've also seen, and not so much in the IPO market yet, but in the economy more generally, is we've seen financial conditions tighten up. Hmm. We had the stock market correction from its elevated levels. It's come back up a little bit, but it's still, it's still not as strong as it was at the earlier part of 2018. We've seen some things rebalance themselves. Hmm. And so the question is, will there be this self-bridling in that sector, or will there be lack of self-bridling that ultimately leads to what happened in the 1990s. So I'm, I'm looking at this closely. We watch it regularly, but I don't see any signs that are imminent that this is going to be a tip over like we saw in the 1990s. Okay, okay very helpful. You know, there's, um, there's a several uh, questions that I'm going to put together. They have to do with how the Federal Reserve uh, looks at you know, real life impact, like uh, senior citizens' reliance on interest rates. Um, this one is about income inequality. Okay. Uh, or stagnant uh, wage growth. So they're all very disparate, I know, but they're more social considerations sure. of the impact of the choices that the right. Fed makes. How are those taken into consideration? Oh, that's, a, that's a great question. So, you know, I mentioned this a little bit in my remarks about how I got to this place. My, um, if you looked at my research, I've focused a lot on income inequality, uh, gaps in wages, uh, differences, distributional consequences of any policies across the, the United States. And so I take those things very seriously, as do all Fed uh, participants and, and the Federal Reserve System more generally. But ultimately, we have a very blunt instrument to solve those problems because those problems aren't usually mostly are not related to the business cycle. So the interest rate policy that we have, that's our tool, that only affects things that move up and down with the business cycle. Mm -hmm. It does not affect secular gaps that emerge or structural gaps that emerge. And income inequality and wage inequality and others are related to structural factors in in our system. And those factors, you could have a laundry list of factors, but let me just offer a couple. 
we have a great skill mismatch right now between the jobs that are being created and the skills they demand and the jobs that the population in the U.S. have on average. That skill mismatch means there's going to be income inequality because there are going to be some winners who have those skills and they get paid a lot and some losers who don't have those skills and don't get paid as much. So that winner-loser calculation is income inequality. The solution for that, though... We can run a hot economy, but it won't help people transform their skill sets. So ultimately, the solution for that has to go to the other side of the, the house of policy, and that is to increase educational attainment and skills to get people to solve those problems. We at the Fed, at San Francisco Fed, we have spent a lot of time trying to help convene and research these issues so that we can inform public policymakers who are doing the fiscal side of the policy mm. house. So it's something we pay attention to. The way I'd, I want to just leave you with this one thought on this, that I take seriously the idea that full employment is our mandate, and Congress gave us that mandate on a cyclical basis, but we could think about full employment on a structural basis. Mm. What's full employment 20 years from now? I'm doing everything in my power to, to ensure that it's higher than it is today. Mm. Fantastic. Uh, this question has to do with a comparison with other countries. Um, references made to Switzerland, Germany, and Japan. Um, and I'm not sure of the accuracy, but it says the CPI is less than 1% in those three com- countries. And full employment. So what's magic about 2% for the USA? Would it really matter if it was 1.6%? So it's a question it, about comparative in terms of what other c- countries are experiencing. That's a, that's a great question. So those other countries are very worried about inflation. They're not they're they two percent is something that many countries feel is a reasonable it's like the Goldilocks number for many countries. But but why? You might ask why. Well you want a buffer because the risk of falling into deflation, that is hard to get out of. Japan is a great example. They have been trying everything they have in their toolkit to get inflation to go up and just won't. And so that's a dangerous game. Because if you get deflation, if prices are going to be lower tomorrow than they are today, that's what deflation means, then you don't buy anything. You wait for tomorrow, and then you wait for tomorrow again. So this locks up spending. I mean, who's going to buy anything if it's going to be cheaper tomorrow? So you know, just the deflation is a risky business, and you don't want infl- the, your target inflation to be too close to that risky outcome. So, and it's also not too high. So if inflation's three and four or five percent, people start to get worried that, oh, that's high. Maybe I should postpone. Maybe I should buy everything now. You're making poor decisions. So two percent is roughly been the target for many countries. And importantly, the U.S., though, is the Fed Reserve, let me put it this way. We're not uh, set to anything without questioning it. So we're, I don't know how many of you know this, the Federal Reserve has set out for, in 2019 to get on a listening tour and to go ask Americans all over the country, academics, non-academics, businesses, consumers, etc., cetera, uh, what should monetary policy look like? What should the execution of our monetary policy look like? We are not going to change our m- mandates. Those are congressionally given to us, and we believe in them, full employment, price stability. But you can think about how we execute on those goals. And we're actually asking those questions because I think 2% is the right number, but I don't want to sit there and believe that without questioning it. I have a a mantra that I always repeat to myself, be curious, be confident, be humble. So I'm constantly curious about what the right answer is. I'm confident that to execute on the answer I have today, and I'm humble enough to know that I need to ask again. Mm. So that's, that's the metric we are on, when we, or the mantra we're on when we go out on this listening tour. Fantastic. 
Humility is not a quality that's actually valued much in our political process today. So that's so refreshing. That's so refreshing. Um, this is a question about specific areas of, you know, uh, significant uh, uh, inflation, say asset or equities, uh, Bay Area housing. Uh, is, are there regional uh, solutions that you look at in addition to national averages? How does that work out? No, that's a, that's a great question. So, you know, the Fed, just to tell you the problem we have, the, the, the things we're up against, we have a dual mandate, full employment, price stability. We have one instrument. So we have two goals in one instrument. So our one instrument being the short-term interest rate. So that's a lot to manage just those, two th- those three things. We do this for the aggregate economy because if we were solving regional issues, we would end up making the economy too hot for just to solve a problem that's only in a local area. If we ran the economy too soft because we wanted to deheat the Bay Area, we'd end up putting millions of Americans in other parts of the country out of work. Mm -hmm. So it is an aggregate economy policy. And what happens then is regions can vary. And what those regions have to do is think about the solutions that are region-specific. And you've seen a lot more evolution of what we call place-based economics. And on the housing front, that's solutions that say, we know our economy... when it ramps up, needs more housing. How do we imagine, How do we think about that? That can be transportation solutions, housing solutions, etc. I know the Barrier Economic Council, Barrier Council, is thinking about these types of issues too, and those are really regional issues that you know the governors of states and the localities have to consider. There's a, a question just about what does the Federal Reserve Bank do when it's not considering you know raising the interest rates? What else happens there? Like what activities do you do? <laughs> So we have three pillars. Uh, Let me talk about the three core functions. We call these our core functions. So we've already talked about the monetary policy function. That is all about creating this healthy and stable economy. But we're also responsible for a safe and secure payment system. And that means we're thinking hard about, you know, cash. And, you know, everybody says cash is dead. You have to just go outside of the Bay Area, and you'll see that cash is not dead. It's actually growing a lot. In fact, it's much higher demand for cash today, both domestically and foreign demand, than it was 10 years ago. So that's an important part of our our, uh, responsibilities. But the payment system more generally. We really are responsible for making sure that's safe and secure. And then, of course, we have financial stability and financial regulation. We are in charge of making sure that when you show up in, in, us and other regulators, when you show up in your bank, you can get the money that you put in there and not have bank runs and make sure that citizens feel comfortable with that. That financial intermediation that we rely so heavily on, it only occurs and stays that way when the regulators, not just us, are responsible for securing it. So that's what we do. We have 1,700 employees who are working on those core functions and also making sure that, like every firm, we have people who support those core functions. What's really cool, if I don't mind me sharing this, is that right at the front of our building, when you walk in, we have these posters, they're like big prints that our internal communications people put up. And the very first one says, our work serves every American and countless global citizens. Mm. And when people who work at the Fed walk in and they see that, it's like their touchstone because they feel deeply connected to everyone. And it doesn't matter if they're working in the print shop that made those posters or they're the heading up supervision and regulation for the entire Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. Mm. Do you, um, you can tell I'm a little proud of the Federal Reserve yeah. Bank of San Francisco. Uh, it sounds like you enjoy your job. I love my job. It's the best job I've ever had. Wow. Better than the donut shop. 
Well, you know. <laughs> well, that was uh, a good one, too, though. No, it's super. You know, when I got this job, I'm about to have my six-month anniversary, and I'm going to make a video for the, the people who work at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. And the video is going to be short and easy. It's going to say, I thought this was going to be the best job of my life, and it's exceeded every expectation I had. And it's because all the people who work there with me and all the people at the FOMC mm -hmm. when we meet and anybody around, we actually all believe in doing the same thing. Yeah. And that's, that's inspiring, especially in yeah. today's world, I think. It's really just a lot of inspiring hope yeah. and promise. My guess is you're a great boss. You're inspiring the people <laughs> around you. So this is my guess. Um, oh, here's a question more about policy. Uh, the yield curve has inverted. Does this mean the economy is about to enter a recession? Well, history would tell you yes, but logic may tell you not so much. So let's think about, no, it's a great question, and it's an important question. So if you look at the yield curve inversions, historically, they've always predicted a recession. So we've not had a recession without the inversion of the yield curve, and we've only had one time that the yield curve inverted where we didn't have a recession. So that's a pretty good record of saying, wow, this is not a good thing. And I don't want to argue that this time is different because we could have said that a million times, but let's talk through some of the reasons the yield curve has inverted recently and why we don't have a lot of, there's no study that definitively tells us why, why yield curve inversions help us predict the recessions or correlate it with those. It's a correlation, not a causal statement. So let me think about why in the past they've been correlated this way. Well, in the past, what's happened is oftentimes is the Fed has been very timid about raising interest rates as the economy's reached unsustainable paces of growth, and then it has to react very quickly. So it's gone from very little interest rate increases to a sharp movement up, and that almost inevitably will invert the yield curve because the short end goes up rapidly and the long end can't adjust quickly enough, and you invert the yield curve. But the yield curve inversion isn't the culprit. It's the fact that you were going, going, going this way, and then you shoot up interest rates, and the economy can't adjust fast enough, and it can tip into recession. So that's what the general sense is of why this has happened in the past. So this, what's different this time? Well, I'm, I'm going to offer that we've been much better as an agency, an institution, at communicating the path of our interest rate adjustments, that we've been more... Um, transparent about data dependency and how we think about that. You can look at the summary of economic projections and see, and it's interesting, the more data dependent we get, the more there's this issue out there about have we pivoted too fast or what's driving our pivot? What's driving our pivot is the data. Mm -hmm. So data dependence ends up in a situation that you're observing, which is you think that we're here and then you get the data and you, you go there. So that's another thing that could prevent an yield curve inversion from leading, or, or not leading to, but being correlated with a recession. And the final two things I'll say is that the, the yield curve, for those of you who are followers of the yield curve, is all about the short end on treasuries versus the long end on treasuries. So three month versus 10 year, let's just take that. So there's a lot of factors holding down rates on the 10 year and the rates are the yields on the 10 year being held down for flight to safety. You can see that emerging markets and Europe is not in great shape, so people come and purchase our bonds. Mm -hmm. Also, we have a balance sheet that's larger, and so that just means the term premium has shrunk. And so all of these factors, technical and otherwise, are not, I'm not dismissing this and saying we're not paying attention to it. I'm just saying I'm not uh, freaked out which is a good thing as a policymaker. And importantly, <laughs> I don't want, I'm, I'm hopeful that businesses and market participants won't freak out mm. because it's really easy for markets to act in a herd mentality yeah. and then create a self-fulfilling prophecy. And we don't want that to happen. No.
Study in the boat. That's, you know, uh, I work in venture capital and uh, conversations like, well, should we try to be acquired, say a company in my portfolio? There's almost this paranoia or inevitability that this market cannot keep going as it is. So the shoe's going to drop somehow. When should we sell? Now, is there inevitability to the end of this market? So this is fascinating to me. To me, too. Uh, Yeah, I bet. So, no, this is really fascinating. If you look over, um, you do research, really quantitative research, all the statistical analysis, it is not true that expansions die of old age. Expansions mm. simply do not die of old age. They don't just wear out and say, okay, that's over. But people believe they die yeah, of old oh, age. Oh, absolutely. They really do. And if people believe they die of old age, that can be the thing that kills them. Mm. So they, uh, only two ways expansions die, typically, really on a regular basis, is the Fed kills them or the, the economic agents themselves kill them mm-hmm. <laughs> because they just get worn out and they think, oh, it's going to go sometime, so I'm going to be more cautious. Mm. So just to remind everybody, uh, right now, Today, we're, we, we're coming off the rapid pace of growth in 2018, but we're just coming down in projections, not only my own, but other forecasters, that are just at the sustainable pace of growth of the U.S. economy. So that's still a solid, healthy expansion. In fact, that's what you want, healthy, stable growth. Mm. Fantastic. Um, the uh, question has to do with um, uh, other factors that you can't predict that come into uh, into your world. Uh, one is being the tariff war that mm-hmm. goes on. How does that affect, you know, is that a cost push inflation? How do you like take that into account? So unpredictable. Will we reach an agreement with China, uh, the Trump administration or not? Or So how do you deal with tariffs? Oh, that's a great question. So these trade disputes and other things like this are something that you can look in the data. We have lots of really good data. So we can actually trace, you know, producers and where they get their goods from and how much it's going to add to the costs and other things. And when you do this, and many, many economists across the country have done this, we've done this at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. In fact, we have a couple of publications out that, that document this. When you do this, you roughly conclude the following, that it's not a big, um, decline in, in GDP growth. It has a little bit of an effect, but the effects on the real economy are small, a tenth or two on GDP growth. The inflation effects are slightly bigger, but they're like a tenth or two, nothing, nothing big. So the real economy and the inflation effects are limited in the current um, trade negotiation we see. Mm-hmm. Of course, if there was something that we all stopped trading, you know, nobody traded with anyone, that would be a much worse situation, but that's not what we're talking about right now. But there's a more important component that often gets overlooked. And that's the uncertainty that trade disputes or a government shutdown or a variety of other things create. And there's a material impact on growth of ongoing uncertainty, policy uncertainty. And right now, global uncertainty, policy uncertainty, and domestic policy uncertainty are elevated. Mm-hmm. And those uncertainties make people more cautious when they're thinking about businesses or investing or spending or going public or not. And that caution will temper growth itself. Mm. In, in terms of growth, then, is, uh, what do you think of nominal GDP uh, nomination, uh, determination. What we need to hit a certain GDP number. Yeah. So no- nominal GDP targeting, price level targeting, all of these are. Remember, I just a moment ago said the Fed's on a listening tour to ask about what should our monetary policy execution strategy be if we're going to achieve price stability and full employment. And one of the things on the table is nominal GDP targeting or price level targeting. That's essentially when you know. Right now, if I may, can you? If I just so right now we do inflation targeting. 
And that means we're targeting 2%. If the, our, pre, our preferences are for it to be 2%. If it's below 2%, we aim for 2%. If it's above 2%, we aim for 2%. Mm-hmm. And we let bygones be bygones. If we've missed inflation over the last 10 years, we don't think about making up those misses. We just think about hitting 2%. If you go to GDP targeting, nominal GDP targeting, or price level targeting, what you're saying is, I want to make up for all those past misses. I don't want, if I've missed inflation for the last seven years, I want to make sure that I overshoot 2% in order to make up for those bygones. Right now, I'm still in the the curiosity stage. Mm -hmm. I am thinking hard about these issues. We've got staff in the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco thinking about them all over the uh, country. They have economists thinking about these. But we're also asking people. And I will have um, some ideas about how to move forward in a year, but right now I'm still in the discovery phase on that. It's certainly important to think about this yeah. as an alternative. Okay. Here's an economist question. Um, you mean is, that wasn't an economist yes, question? Well, I guess wow. this is like, what is the relevance of the Phillips curve? Uh, really? Yes, Holy exactly, mackerel. for monetary policy. And, you know, I don't These know if I'm like the only treats. one. I'm getting going, treats. The Phillips curve, of course. Uh, so does this, is this still relevant? Okay. So for those of you who are not uh, studying the Phillips curve on a regular basis, uh, there's many reams of material you could read on our website. So I'm just, I'm just kidding. So here's what the, <laughs> the Phillips curve was um, a, uh, an empirical finding of a person with the last name of Phillips. So Phillips, what Phillips found is the, just a simple point, that unemployment and inflation are related. Mm. So when unemployment goes up, inflation should go down. Mm-hmm. And when unemployment goes down, inflation should go up. And if you look at the data over the, in the United States and other countries over time, what you see is this makes a nice relationship. You can count on this. And remember when I went through that simple model where I said, here's how the economy works? Embedded in that simple model of supply and demand and employment's growing rapidly, wages are going up and inflation's going up, that's un- basically a Phillips curve idea. So, no, I, th- I don't think it's irrelevant. Mm-hmm. I actually rely on it as an important tool. It provides a framework. But in, like any model, it's just a framework. It's your starting point. It's not your ending point. So I'm not ready to throw the Phillips curve out. I think it's really relevant. It's the underlying structure. But all those wedges I talked about, mm-hmm. those are wedges that are disrupting the Phillips curve. Mm-hmm. The Phillips curve, the relationship between unemployment and inflation, has wedges disrupting them, whether it's the worker bargaining power or the measurement wedge or firms competition and they don't want to raise their prices, or importantly, even the Fed. These wedges are disrupting that Phillips curve relationship, and it makes it uncle- you can't see it as clearly, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean it's dead. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to use that Mark Twain thing: rumors of its death are, are greatly overstated. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the, in, in segment of the Democratic Party today, there's a Green New Deal, and uh, this question deals with looking at uh, the impact of climate change on the economy, right? And how we plan for the future, and how we start to structure an economy that is thinking intentionally about the environment. Uh, how does that go into consideration at the Federal Reserve? So, you know, again, just to remind you all that our three core uh, functions are uh, monetary policy, the price stability, full employment, then the payment system, safe and secure payment system, and a healthy and sound, stable financial system. So what we're thinking about is how does climate risk put any of those things at jeopardy? And so a good example is in California, you know, there's been so many things that are climate-related events, and people are displaced, and people are, are 
moved away from their homes and they lose property. And all of this actually matters for the payment system. It matters for insurance companies. It matters for banks. So we're paying a lot of attention to how those things are affected. And in fact, we have just uh, yesterday, we released a, a short 2,000 word, what we call an economic letter on how climate risk should be thought of from the perspective of the Federal Reserve system. And it really is on our radar from those risk events. And, and so I, I, one, I think it's important. And two, it's something that we are taking seriously. Okay. Uh, this is uh, time for just one last question. You mentioned about going around the country and hearing the opinion of constituencies of all types. Uh, how could the audience or people listening in today on radio, television, or internet, which they are, how can they participate in that? Well, look on, so in your regional banks will all have on their website probably a advertisement about what where they're going to hold their public events. And if you also go to the Federal Reserve Board, there's one big website that has all the events listed and where you can participate in them. So you there for some places we're doing they're doing town halls, other places they're doing local focus groups. The important thing is Go there, think about those things, raise your hand. And if you don't have one of those venues, it's not convenient. It's actually okay to just write us. You know, we're out in the public. We have people out all the time. Tell us, write us, share your opinions. We want to hear them. And when you do it, be nice. (laughs) Uh, Big hand for Dr. Mary Daly. Uh, we also want to thank our audience here today and, and also on, on radio and television and Internet. Um, this is the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco, where civic uh, debate and discussion still happens. And I'm Dr. David Batstone. It's my pleasure to end this event of the Commonwealth Club. <laughs>